The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, good evening. It's great to be here with you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Ezra chapter 7. And we're going to continue our series in this awesome, awesome book. Have you guys been enjoying this? Last week was so amazing, wasn't it? God showed up. Amen. Amen. It was rad. And he's going to show up again tonight. So the title of my message for you tonight is Learner, Doer, Teacher. And that will make more sense as we work our way into our text. But I want to start by saying this. We're seven chapters into the book of Ezra. The whole book is only nine chapters, and yet it's not until tonight that we're actually going to get to meet Ezra. That's kind of strange, isn't it? I mean, if you can believe it, 80 years have passed since the events that transpired in the opening chapter of this book. Then there's a 60-year gap that takes place between the end of chapter six and the beginning of chapter seven. And there's all kinds of exciting stuff that happens in that gap. You say, what was happening during those 60 years? Well, for one thing, that's when the story of Esther, Queen Esther takes place in that gap. And so now we're in this seventh chapter, but if you go back uh, to the sixth chapter, you might recall if you were here last week, that it describes the dedication of the temple of God. And it was a big win, a major cause for celebration among God's people. I mean, think about it. After more than 70 years, or exactly 70 years, of Babylonian captivity, they were finally released and sent back to their homeland. And not only that, but after a lot of work, they were able to erect this temple, and now they're offering sacrifices to God once again. But God wasn't done, not by a long shot. You see, Bringing the people back was just phase one of the bigger goal that God had in mind. God was getting ready to do a spiritual renewal of his people. He was getting ready to spark a revival among his people. And so what he did is he tapped a guy on the shoulder named Ezra to lead that revival. And we get to meet him here in chapter 7. So let's go ahead and read beginning in verse 1. It says, after these things... During the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of, I don't even know that one, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishai, the son of Phinehas, Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief high priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for. The hand of the Lord was upon him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. For the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. 
All right, so the way that Ezra gets introduced to us here in chapter 7 is by way of genealogy, you know, real attention grabber there right now. It doesn't really excite us, but we need to understand why he chose to introduce himself by his genealogy, and it had to do with um, giving him credentials. These were his, his credentials, as it were. This is what gave him the authority to lead the people of God. He was showing and establishing that he was a part of and a descendant of the priestly line that started with Aaron. But you need to know this. It wasn't just his pedigree that gave him authority with the people. More important than that was that he had dedicated himself to his craft. We read about this in verses 6 and 11. It says that he was a teacher well-versed in the laws of Moses. We're told that two different times. So his, his pedigree, you might say, opened the door, but it was his dedication to his craft that really cemented his authority among the people. Now, when it says that he was a teacher well-versed in the law, it means he knew his stuff. The word teacher there, it can also be translated as scribe. And we need to take a minute to, to talk about what the scribes were and and what they did, because they were prominent figures in ancient Israel that continued to hold an important role in, in Jewish society up until and even through the time of Jesus. And the roles and responsibilities carried about by the scribes was varied, but all of their work centered around this book. In fact, the word scribe means writer, and it spoke to their chief responsibility. The scribes they were the ones that were responsible for taking the Torah, the Old Testament, the, the Word of God, and copying it down word for word and making copies of it. Um, you have to remember that back then in ancient Israel, there weren't no printing presses, obviously. And so every copy of scripture was done entirely by hand. And they had a, a, an elaborate and detailed process to make sure that they got it right and that there were no errors or mistakes along the way, but that was one of their chief responsibilities. In addition to that, they were also responsible for studying the word, teaching the word to the people, writing and drafting up legal documents, and settling practical matters that related to the laws of Moses. So it was a big and important job. That was Ezra. He was a scribe. But here's something else I want to point out about him. In addition to being a scribe, he also held a prominent position in the courts of King Artaxerxes. So his spiritual job was scribe, but his secular life took him into the palace of the king. And here's what's cool about that. It was his secular position that he was able to then leverage to open the door for a whole second wave of Babylonian exiles to return to Jerusalem. And, and I want to make a point of this because most of you, you aren't ministers vocationally. You don't get your paycheck from a church. But don't let the devil fool you. That doesn't mean that God can't use you. You see, Ezra is a prime example of someone who leveraged his secular vocation to advance the kingdom agenda of heaven. Amen. And I want to say to each person in here tonight that you are where you are by the design of heaven, that God has planted you and positioned you for such a time as this in your job where you work so that you can leverage that position 
to advance the kingdom, just like Ezra did. You see, he worked in the courts of King Artaxerxes, and he obtained permission from him to return. And not only was he granted permission, but because the hand of the Lord was upon him, he was able to lead a whole bunch of people. We're going to learn in the next chapter that the number was somewhere in the, the realm of the neighborhood of about 5,000 people that returned with Ezra from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Now, leading this caravan was no small undertaking. I mean, they had to trek more than 900 miles in a hot, arid, dangerous desert to make their way from Babylon to Israel. Their large size and slow speed would have made them prime targets for thieves and robbers. But even still, it's interesting to note that Ezra didn't ask for a military escort, although he could have. But he chose not to. And why is that? Well, he reasoned that the God who had called them to go would protect them as they went. And praise the Lord, that's exactly what happened. Look what it says with me in verse 9. It says, he began his journey from Babylon the first day of the month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. Why? Because the gracious hand of his God was on him. If you don't mind marking your Bibles, you might want to underline that phrase. The gracious hand of his God was on him. What a beautiful statement to make. Wouldn't you love that to be said about you? It's a phrase that shows up time and time and time again in the life of Ezra. In fact, it shows up four times in this one chapter. We read about the, the hand, the gracious hand of the Lord on Ezra's life. So you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's basically longhand for the favor of God. Ezra walked in the favor of God. It was like a running theme in his life. And we're provided with more evidence of that favor in the second half of this chapter, which essentially consists of a letter that King Artaxerxes gives to Ezra to give him passage and whatever he needs for his journey. If you look at verse 20, one of the things that King Artaxerxes wrote in this letter was, and anything that you need for the temple of your God that you're responsible to supply, you can provide for that from the royal treasury. That's what you call the favor of God. When the king of a country hands you a blank check and gives you the personal pin to his credit card and says, whatever you need for your travel expenses and for your journey and for the temple that you're building, it's on me. That's when you know you have the favor of God. Somebody say amen. I wouldn't mind if somebody did that for me tonight. But he didn't stop there. A few sentences later in verse 26, look what the king writes. Whoever doesn't obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death. And if that's not bad enough, you're already dead. In addition to being dead, you will be banished, have your property confiscated, and be in prison. Now, if you're dead and you're in prison and your property's been taken away, that's a bad situation. But again, these verses, I think, just help to highlight the extraordinary favor that Ezra walked in. As I said earlier, the favor of God is a running theme in his life. What if that were the running theme of your life? Daniel walked in the favor of God. Wouldn't that be beautiful if, if people just said that about you, if they spoke that over you, if that were true of you? Well, guess what? You can walk in and experience the favor of God, just like Ezra did. You say, how can I assure that? Well, the key to walking in the favor of God is found in verse 10, where it says, and I'll just back up to read the last part of verse 9, where it says, the gracious hand of God was on him. Why? For, that same word for can be translated 
because or since. So the gracious hand of God was on him because he devoted himself to study, observe, and do and teach the decrees and laws of the Lord in Israel. So this is the secret sauce to Ezra's success in life. He was devoted to the Lord. Take note of that word devoted. What are you devoted to? In Ezra, we get to see a case study of what God can and will do through the person who is wholly devoted to him. This whole idea of being wholly divided, devoted to the Lord, it, um, not divided, devoted, right? <laughs> the opposite of divided. Wholly devoted to the Lord. It reminds me of a story I once heard about D.L. Moody. Some of you are familiar with the work and ministry of D.L. Moody. Well, as a young man, Moody had attended a church service where a man named Henry Varley was preaching. And during the course of that particular sermon, Varley said something that stuck with Moody for the rest of his life. Here's what he said. He said, the world has yet to see what God will do with and for and in and through the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Let me say that again, because I think this is so key. The world is yet to see what God will do with and for and in and through the man or woman who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. As Deal Moody sat in that church service and took in those words, he prayed a simple prayer. He said, by God's grace, I want to be that man. And the Lord answered his prayer. God used Moody marvelously to spark revivals on two separate continents. Now, Ezra, of course, lived long before either of those men. But I would suggest to you that he was cut from the same cloth. Because like them, he sought to live wholly devoted to God. You see, he didn't just dabble in the things of the Lord. He didn't just dip his toes in. He didn't try to live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church, like so many Christians today seem to do. He wasn't just kind of committed. He was wholly devoted. And that's why he enjoyed God's favor in his life. You see, what you need to understand is that there is a special blessing that comes attached to the person who is wholly devoted to the things of the Lord and totally surrendered. Listen to this promise. This is in 2 Chronicles 16.9. It says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, and he's looking for those whose hearts are towards him, devoted to him, loyal to him, perfect towards him. Why? So that he might show himself strong on their behalf. God wants to show off, and he wants to do it in your life. He wants to do it through you. But God can only do that in the life of a man or a woman who is wholly consecrated to him. So again, I say to you that the world is yet to see what God will do with and in and through and for the man or the woman who is wholly consecrated to him. By God's grace, may we all say, I want to be that man. I want to be that woman. I've heard it said like this, God always saves his best for those who hold back the least. And Ezra is a prime example of that. He went all in with God. And again, that helps explain why God was able to use him so powerfully. 
Now, as we dig a little deeper into verse 10, I think there's some more gems for us to unpack there. What we're going to see is that he wasn't just kind of devoted to God in some general, abstract way, but his devotion took hold of his life in a very specific and particular area. Our text tells us that he was devoted to studying the word of God. You could say that Ezra was devoted to learning. Learning what? Learning about the Lord. By the way, isn't that something that all of us are called to do and be? We're learners. In fact, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you are by default a lifelong learner. The word disciple means learner. So how do we learn? Well, there are a lot of different ways that we learn about the Lord. But one of the primary ways that God has given to us to learn about him is this book right here. Everybody hold your Bible up really quick. This book, whether it's digital, you can hold up a phone, whatever, it's all good, it's all the same, it's all the word of God, it's all inspired, it's all God-breathed, it's all profitable for life and godliness. And you need to know that this book will change your life. It reveals the heart of God, the mind of God, the plan of God. And if you want to follow in God's ways, then you've got to learn how to feast on his word. You show me a Christian who is consistently devouring the word of God, and I'll show you a Christian who's walking the victorious Christian life. By, by way of contrast, show me a Christian who is haphazard in their treatment of the word of God, and I'll show you a Christian who is malnourished and stunted in their growth. The definition for the Hebrew word study is interesting. It means to seek with care. So when we talk about Ezra was devoted to studying or learning, it means to seek with care. If you, if you need a picture of what it means or what it looks like to seek for something with care, just think back to the last time you misplaced your phone. You were seeking for that phone with care, weren't you? And that'll give you an idea of what this word means. It, it speaks of diligently searching for something. And that's how Ezra studied the word of God. He wasn't casual in his approach. He was diligent. Reminds me of something that the great reformist preacher Martin Luther once said. He was asked one time how he approached his study of the Bible. And I want to read to you his answer. He said, I study my Bible like I gather apples. First, I shake the whole tree that the ripest might fall. Then I shake each limb. And when I've shaken each limb, I shake each branch and then every twig. And then finally, I look under every leaf. He went on to explain what he meant by that. I search the Bible as a whole, like shaking the whole tree. Then I shake every limb by studying book after book. Then I shake every branch by giving attention to the individual chapters. Then I shake every twig and turn over every leaf by carefully studying the paragraphs and sentences and words and their meanings. I would say that definitely qualifies as diligently seeking. He was, he was seeking God diligently in the way he studied his word. What about, what about you? I mean, I think if we were being honest, many of us would have to say, I don't, I don't really take that same approach, right? The Bible might be the best-selling book of all time, but it's certainly not the most read book. 
Most people are content with just reading a chapter here or there or playing Bible roulette and just kind of flipping their Bible open and pointing to a verse and hoping that God speaks to them. But not too many people really dig into it. But what if that's part of the reason why we don't experience the power and the miraculous and the blessings in the same way that these saints of old that we read about in this book experienced. You see, we can't expect to experience God in the same ways that they did if we're not willing to search for God and seek God in the same ways that they did. We can't claim to love God with all of our hearts and then ignore his love letter to us. If we love God, we'll love his word. It's really as simple as that. We need to adopt the attitude that the psalmist expressed with regards to the word of God. He said this about the word in Psalm 19, verse 10. The word of God, to me, it's more to be desired than gold, much gold, fine gold. He valued God's word above earthly treasures, gold. I don't know a lot about gold mining. But one thing I do know about gold mining is that you don't find it just resting on the surface, do you? You're never going to find gold with a rake. That's not going to net you any gold. If you want to find gold, you've got to take out your shovel. You've got to dig. The Bible's the same way. Imagine, imagine if someone told you, and, and they knew they had the technology to know, and you knew that in your backyard was buried a whole bunch of gold somewhere. How would you go after that gold? You wouldn't just kind of casually get out there and like just kind of kick around a rock, maybe take a shovel here and a shovel for there. No, you would, you would do it with everything that you had. You would do it diligently. You would like quadrant off your backyard and you would start in this square and you'd go to that square and you would do it joyfully. And even though you were sweaty and dirty, you wouldn't stop until you found the gold. If you wore out your shovel, maybe you'd even grab a spoon. I don't know. You can probably guess where I'm going with this. If we're willing to do that to find earthly treasure that is here today and then fades away and eventually ruins, how much more should we be willing to do that with the eternal word of God, which is more valuable than gold, infinitely so? You see, the point is, is if we want God's favor to rest on us, like Ezra did, then we need to devote ourselves to becoming lifelong learners just like he was. But that's not all. Ezra didn't stop there. In addition to devoting himself to a lifelong pursuit of learning, Ezra was also devoted to doing. That's the next thing that we're told in verse 10. He devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord. Earlier, I talked about D.L. Moody. Well, one of the things that he was fond of saying is that he thought and felt like every Bible ought to be wrapped in shoe leather. That is to say, he, he thought the application of this book, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, where you flesh it out in your life, was of the utmost importance. Listen, the point of studying scripture can't just be that we get bigger heads or gain more knowledge and information. If it doesn't lead to life transformation, if all we're doing here is just getting together to have a book talk, then let's go home and watch the Padres, because Tatis might be up. 
But if what we're doing here is going to lead to a transformation in our lives, now we're talking about something that can reshape the entire world. It has to lead there. In the book of James, he compares the person who reads the word of God and then goes out and doesn't do what it says to a person who looks at themselves in a mirror and then immediately forgets what they see and walks away. I love this analogy because we've all done this. Have you ever been having lunch with somebody and maybe, maybe you have a salad and you're just talking and enjoying this conversation with them and then at some point you get up and excuse yourself and you go use the restroom and as you kind of check the mirror, you've had just like this big piece of lettuce just like covering one of your teeth the whole time and you realize in that moment that the person you're having lunch with isn't your real friend because if they were your real friend, they would have told you. But they just left you there and smiled at you and <laughs> like, you are such a fool. We've all had there. We've all been there, right? Even worse yet, and I'll be a little crude with this, but you get to the bathroom and you've just got a big, green, gooey, sticky booger, just a bat in the cave, just, and oh man, it's the worst. Now imagine, you see that piece of lettuce, you see that big, gooey booger, and you're just like, all right, and you walk back and you don't deal with it. According to James, that's what the person is like who reads the word, and it shows us things about ourselves. Because the word of God, if it's like a mirror, it shows us the good, the bad, and the ugly. It is not like that friend that didn't tell you about what was in your teeth. The word will tell you what's going on in your soul. And it's not just going to read what's on the outside. It gets to the nitty gritty, doesn't it? And it's much uglier than a gross booger or a piece of lettuce. But if we don't deal with that, it's like looking in the mirror and walking away. And the whole point of looking is so that we can change, make changes. So the Bible study is great, but it can't become an end in and of itself. We have to let God's work do its thing in us and through us. You see, it can't just be about getting through the whole Bible. That's a, a big priority around here. But it can't be our only priority. It has to be about getting the Bible through the whole of us. Do you see the difference? It's not just about ticking off a box or, or saying that we read our Devo for the day. It has to lead to life change. Paul, the apostle, lived his life in such a way that he was able to write these words to the Corinthians. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Notice what he doesn't say there. He doesn't say, do as I say, <laughs> do as I teach, or memorize as I've memorized. No, he says, do as I do. Can we say the same thing? I think it's a question worth considering. I mean, think about it like this. What if you were the only Christian someone knew? Would your actions make them want to know more about Jesus? Ouch. That one stings a little bit. And the reason I ask that, because... In the most literal sense, it is the truth. You are the only Bible that many people will ever read. Oftentimes, people say, what's the best translation of the Bible to read? And there's so many different translations out there. Should I get a King James version or an NIV version or some other version of the Bible? You know what the most effective Bible translation out there is? It's you. That's what Paul said. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he said, you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. 
<laughs> Clearly, you're an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, mind you, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. You are a living epistle. Many people will never walk through those doors or sit in one of these pews, but they'll interface with you. And as they do, I wonder what they're getting. Will, they, will your actions bring them closer to Jesus or leave them indifferent? There's this old poem. It's written by a guy named Arthur McPhee. And I like the way he said it. He wrote this. The gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are read by more than a few. But the one that is most read and commented on is the gospel according to you. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? So we got to be devoted to learning. We've got to be devoted to doing. And then Ezra was devoted to one more thing. We read about it in verse 10, where it says he was devoted to teaching the decrees and laws found in God's word to all of Israel. Ezra was devoted to teaching. Now, the order here is significant. The teaching, you'll notice, comes after the learning and the doing. There's a reason for that. People will always respond better to receiving instruction from someone they respect. You see, the character of the teacher is more important than their communication skills or oratory ability. Now, at this point, perhaps some of you are thinking, well, I guess I'm excused from this third one. I'll be a lifelong learner. I'll commit to being devoted to doing, but I'm, I'm no teacher. And there's no way I'm ever going to put on a, a head mic and go and preach like you do. And, and that's fine. You might not be called to do this. Most of you probably aren't. But that doesn't mean you're not a teacher. You see, there are so many different contexts of teaching. And in the broadest sense, aren't all of us really teachers? There are people that are looking to you and learning from you, and you are teaching them, not just with the words that you speak, but also by your example. The Bible talks about this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And they were this godly couple. And there was this young, gifted guy named Barnabas. And he didn't quite have it all together. And so they brought him into their house. And they brought him under their wing. And they discipled him, or trained him, or taught him more fully in the ways of the Lord. And then they commissioned him to go out. And then he preached to thousands of people. In the book of Titus and Timothy, they both talk about how the younger women are to be discipled by the older women in the church. The younger men are to be trained up and discipled by the older men in the church. Teaching. How many of you are parents in here? OK, y'all are teachers. Your kids are watching you. They're learning from you. And so you, too, are teachers. And again, the challenge for us is, what are we teaching our kids? Not just what are we telling them, but what are we teaching them by the way that we live? As we look at Ezra, he was devoted to learning. He was devoted to doing. And he was devoted to teaching. He was wholly devoted to the Lord with every fiber of his being. And because of those things, the gracious hand of his God was upon him. He walked in the favor of the Lord. 
And we're all called to do the same things. Every one of us is called to be learners, doers, and teachers. Every one of us is called to wholly devote ourselves to the Lord. And if you'll do that, then I promise you, listen, there is no telling what God will do with you and in you and through you and for you. Why? Because the world has still yet to see what God will do with and in and through and for the man or the woman who is wholly consecrated to him. By God's grace, will you say with me, I want to be that man. I want to be that woman. I want to go all in for Jesus. Because he went all in for us. He didn't hold anything back. When he went to the cross, he gave you everything that he had. And so he asks for everything we have in return. We can't hold back from him anymore. The the stakes are too high. There's just too much on the line. Eternity is too long, and heaven is too grand, and your calling is too high, and hell is a real place, and God doesn't want any of us to go there. And so he wants to enlist you in his kingdom calling. He wants to leverage your position as a mom, as a dad, as a teacher, as a lawyer, as a doctor, as a student. He wants to leverage you where you're at with what you have to advance his kingdom purposes in this world. He did it with Ezra. He'll do it with you. But you got to be willing. We bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, we thank you for this this word, this, this time that we've been able to spend together, Lord. And you're challenging us through your word to wholly devote ourselves to you, to not hold back, to give you the keys to our hearts, to open up every door and let you into every room, even the closets, Lord, so you can clean house. So you can bring your light to bear on the places and the things that we've tried to hide. Lord, you want to bring healing to your house tonight. There is an army of servants in here. And I think about the potential in this room right now. And it is great. There is great potential in here. But there's a difference between potential energy and released energy. In order for energy to be released, it has to be activated. And perhaps you've been holding back from God, and he's wanting to activate something new in your life tonight. He's wanting you to step into more fully the calling that he has on your life. He's he's asking you to see your job, to see your life through the lens of what he wants to do through you. He's challenging you tonight. You've been living for yourself, and he's challenging you to see your life through the lens of of Paul, who said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ living in me. He gave himself for me, and now I give myself to him. So Jesus, we want to climb up on that altar. We want to offer our lives as living sacrifices to you tonight, Jesus. Come and do whatever you want to do, whatever it looks like, Lord. We surrender to you right now, right here in this place. This is your house. It's a house of miracles. It's a house of healing. It's a house of calling. It's a house of prayer. It's a house of praise. It's a house where power is 
on tap and the power of heaven is present in this room right now. God is here and he's moving. He's knocking on the doors of hearts and he's calling you into a deeper place. He's calling you to wade out into the deep. Maybe you've walked into your ankles and he's calling you to wade in past your knees. He's calling you to wade in past your waist. He's calling you to go all in and dive into the deep end of his love and just be enveloped in who he is. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.